This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm not a king, the statement famously made by Barack Obama midway through his presidency, noting and possibly lamenting the fact that there are limits to his presidential powers, that the Constitution gives Congress the ability to block him in all sorts of ways by giving Congress a final say on certain kinds of appointments, on what laws get passed, how money gets spent. But at the same time as he was lamenting this reality, the president also became one in a long line of presidents to be accused of trying to fashion various end runs around those limits. And the question is whether in doing so he was fairly interpreting the Constitution or whether he was violating it, breaking the rules set in place by the framers. Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. The president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are in Philadelphia at the National Constitution Center. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our audience here in Philadelphia votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters first, arguing for the motion. The president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. I want to introduce Mike McConnell. Mike, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. and the NCC. Thank you. So, uh, Mike, you are a former federal judge. You are now director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford. And what we find interesting in light of today's topic, um, an anecdote about you, that years ago, you were so impressed with a young Harvard Law student who was editor of the Law Review that you essentially got him a job at the University of Chicago Law School. Can you tell us who that person was? Well, I guess that would be Barack Obama. And... uh, Good call on your part? We had very productive and pleasant interchanges, and I still have a lot of residual fondness from those days. All right, we'll look forward to the day he listens to this debate and checks back in with you. Thanks very much, Mike, and please tell us who is your partner. Uh, This is Carrie Severino. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Carrie Severino. Carrie, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are a chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network. That's where you focus on judicial issues like constitutional limits on government and the federal nomination process. You've had briefs filed before the Supreme Court. Your group actually took a strong position when Justice Scalia passed away on how to fill that vacant seat. You argued that people should decide. Uh, by how they vote for president in November of 2016. Question, is that a political argument you're making or is that a constitutional argument? Well, our main driver is constitutional. First, that we have a justice who is going to be faithful to the Constitution and the laws. But second, that we really need to defend the Senate's right to exercise their advice and consent given to them by the Constitution. I expect we'll get a chance to talk a little more about advice and consent. Yes, sounds like we will. Thanks very much. This is the team arguing for the motion. The president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. So we have two debaters arguing against the motion on the opposing team. Please, let's first welcome, hi, Adam Cox. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Adam Cox. Thank you. Adam, also a law professor at New York University School of Law. You teach and write about immigration law, constitutional law, democracy. You've also taught at the University of Chicago Law School, served as a civil rights fellow at the ACLU Foundation. However, given all this law stuff that we're talking about, it turns out that when you were an undergraduate, you got your degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering. How does all of that knowledge help you in the law stuff? Well, my my dad was an engineer, too, and... and he taught me growing up that engineers could solve any problem, so I'll be in trouble with him if I don't say it's helped a lot. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Adam Cox. And who is your partner? Uh, my good friend and former colleague, Eric Posner. Eric Posner, welcome back to Intelligence Squared, your second debate with us. Once again, the University of Chicago Law School, you are the Esther Kane Research Chair there. Uh, your interests include international law, constitutional law, author of many books, including The Executive Unbound After the Madisonian Republic. And that book had a chapter 
chapter six titled Tyrannophobia, which is what? Tyrannophobia is the unreasoning fear that the president at any moment will become a dictator. And I, I wanted to mention to you, John, that I was gratified to see recently that a medical diagnostics website has listed tyrannophobia as a real condition. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Eric Posner. The team arguing against the motion. Let's move on to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Up speaking first for the motion, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Carrie Severino, chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network. Ladies and gentlemen, Carrie Severino. The biggest problems that we're facing right now have to do with our president trying to bring more power into the executive branch and not go through Congress at all. Those are the words of then-candidate Barack Obama in 2008. He pledged, that's what I intend to reverse when I'm president of the United States of America. Well, has he? My colleague and I agree that Obama was right. President Bush did, in many ways, usurp the power of Congress as president. Unfortunately, President Obama continued in his footsteps. But maybe you think Congress has already has too much power under the Constitution, and the president actually should have some more flexibility and freedom of action. Maybe you think that achieving his goals might be worth breaking a few rules now and then. But if you acknowledge that he has taken actions, whether you think they're good or bad, that the Constitution actually assigns to Congress and not the president, then you must vote yes on tonight's proposition. The president has usurped the powers of Congress. To usurp means to take power that doesn't belong to you. So under the Constitution, what powers do belong to the president? The president has the power to execute the law, but he cannot make law. He can't amend law, and he cannot repeal the law. He cannot spend money without congressional appropriation, and he cannot start a war. That's for Congress. He also can't make major appointments without confirmation by the Senate, and he can't sign a treaty without a two-thirds vote of the Senate. I'm going to start with what I think is the most open and shut case, and that is in appointments. As I said, high-level appointments need to have confirmation by the Senate. Uh, but there is an exception during recesses. Uh, the, the, Senate, the president may make recess appointments. But not any old recess will do. Super short recesses like, you know, we're taking a break for lunch. The president can't just throw in a bunch of nominees and call it good. In December 2011... The Senate knew he wanted to push through some controversial nominees that they weren't going to confirm. So they purposely did not go into a big break over Christmas break, as they normally do on December 17th. They said, we're going to go into into sessions every three days purposely and explicitly to block the president's recess appointment power. But the president said, doesn't matter, I'm going to do it anyway. He He put four nominees on and said he was recess appointing them when the Senate said it wasn't in recess. His excuse was, I refuse to take no for an answer. That's hardly constitutional reasoning. And unfortunately for him, no is exactly what the Supreme Court said. They said that unanimously. Every single justice, the conservatives, the liberals, the justices, the president himself had put on the court agreed that he had usurped the powers of Congress. I hope you will agree as well. Another example of abuse comes up in the context of the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare. On 43 different occasions now, this administration has rewritten or ignored deadlines, fines, taxes, and other provisions of the statute because they wanted to ignore or postpone some of the politically painful parts of the law. People like the good stuff, but they don't want to have to pay for it, right? But the only reason the administration has gotten away with this so far is because the court says the House of Representatives doesn't have standing to bring this argument. So basically, they've gotten off on a technicality so far. You're going to hear about a lot of different cases and laws tonight, But don't forget that behind this discussion, there is a vital principle, and that's that the structure of our Constitution is what preserves our liberty. If, after listening to our debate, you agree that on any one of these areas that Michael and I will talk about tonight, the President has usurped powers that the Constitution gives to Congress, you should vote yes on the proposition tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie Severino. Again, the motion, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress and here to speak against the motion. Please welcome Adam Cox, the Robert A. Kindler Professor of Law at New York University School of Law. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Cox. Thank you. I guess I want to start where Kerry left off, with the importance of constitutional structure. Because I think there's a point about which we all agree, certainly everybody on the stage and probably all of you in the audience, which is that the president is, in fact... Uh, a very important policymaker in modern government. And the, the motion on the table suggests that the president holds the power he holds 
because he's stolen it, right, in a power grab. A usurper is someone who seizes force, as Kerry noted, illegally. Now, the reality is that the president possesses power today not because he seized it by force, but instead because over the course of the 20th century, Congress has lawfully delegated to the president power to solve important and complicated social problems. We went through a nationalization and a globalization of our economy. We went through a Great Depression, a New Deal, a couple of world wars, a civil rights revolution. Congress quickly realized that it couldn't solve all those problems on its own. It didn't have the capacity or the expertise to decide, say, what the right level of sulfur dioxide emission was for trucks on U.S. highways, or what the right way was to regulate Wall Street derivatives to make sure that we don't have another financial calamity. And so, in statute after statute, Congress delegated power to the executive branch, to administrative agencies, and to the president to come up with solutions to these problems. And it does mean that the system we have today is really not the system that our founders imagined, but the system they imagined, the system that worked for our agrarian economy, isn't sufficient to tackle the problems we have today. So one of the most prominent arenas in which the president's been criticized is immigration policy. But the most important fact that I can tell you guys tonight about immigration policy is this. There are 22 million non-citizens who live in the country, 11 million of them are out of status. They're unauthorized. To enforce the law fully, the president would have to deport 11 million people. That means, inevitably, the president has to pick and choose, has to decide where enforcement resources will be prioritized and where they'll be deprioritized. And so the, the, the signature immigration initiatives that President Obama announced, the decision not to prioritize the removal of so-called dreamers, right, immigrants who arrived as children, That was just a way of bringing transparency and equality to a set of decisions that the president wasn't just empowered to make by Congress, but was in fact obligated to make in order to enforce the law. Now, that doesn't mean that presidents have unlimited power, because of course, what Congress gives, Congress can take away. But even when the president doesn't win at the court, when a judge decides that the administration's interpretation of those rules that Congress sets to guide the president's exercise of power don't permit something that the administration has done, that's not a sign of usurpation, as Kerry suggested. It's actually a sign of legal compliance, of course, because it's just more evidence that the president is, in fact, bound by these legal rules that Congress establishes. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. The president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. You've heard the first two statements and now on to the third. Debating in support of the motion, Michael McConnell. He is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor of Law and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael McConnell. Uh, Thank you, Uh, John. In preparation for this debate, I uh, read Eric Posner's very interesting book on presidential power, and now I've heard Adam Cox. They seem to be coming at us from opposite directions. Adam Cox thinks everything the president has done is totally legal, authorized by broad delegations by Congress. In contrast, Eric Posner thinks that the very idea that the executive should be limited by laws is now, quote, obsolete. In this book, he identifies what he calls multiple examples in which the executive, I'm quoting now, the executive proceeded with dubious legal authority or simply ignored the laws and got away with it. That in itself demands an affirmative vote on tonight's resolution. 
Now, as Adam Cox just explained, uh, President Obama recently issued an order unilaterally giving lawful status to some four million of those aliens who are here in violation of the law. Now, that doesn't mean not deporting them. That isn't just not prioritizing someone else. The actual terms of the order was to give them lawful status, which includes the right to work, to sign up for Social Security, and to receive numerous other uh, benefits. Now, obviously, uh, Adam thinks this is good public policy, and he may very well be right about that. But it's hard to take seriously the idea that this is just routine enforcement discretion. For one thing, President Obama himself said just the opposite. On March 28, 2011, President Obama said, and I quote, With respect to the notion that I can just suspend deportations through executive order, that's just not the case, because there are laws on the books that Congress has passed. For me to simply, through executive order, ignore those congressional mandates would not conform with my appropriate role as president. Well, appropriate or not, Obama did it anyway. But what matters about this is that if Obama can change this law, a future president can uh, use so-called enforcement discretion to dispense with laws he or she doesn't like of any any sort, tax laws or trade laws, laws about ethics and government. Now, I don't think we have much disagreement up here that Presidents Bush and Obama both have usurped power in the national security arena. I just quote Eric Posner from his book, uh, Love this book. And, and, and Donald Trump will love it even more. It'll be huge. <laughs> Quote, the Obama administration has followed Bush administration policies on national security with the single exception of torture, including the reliance on broad surveillance powers, detention, military commissions, rendition, and targeted assassinations. He calls all these policies questionable under the law. Kerry and I agree. So should you. According to the New York Times, June 18, 2011, quote, President Obama rejected the views of the top lawyers at the Pentagon and the Justice Department when he decided that he had the legal authority to continue American military participation in the air war in Libya without congressional authorization. What will future presidents do with these expansive powers? Well, We don't know. It really depends on what the people decide. That's why this debate is so important, because the first step is to admit that there is a problem. If we're not willing to say even that, we deserve what we get. Thank you. Michael McConnell. Again, the motion, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Our final debater making an opening statement will be speaking against this motion. That's Eric Posner, the Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Esther Kane Research Chair at the University of Chicago Law School. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Posner. My book, which uh, Michael just endorsed, uh, is actually uh, quite consistent with Adam's opening statement. The book makes the point that Adam made as well, that our system has evolved a great deal. The original separation of powers scheme that Madison and other founders envisioned has changed a great deal, but that's because the world has changed and people demand more from the national government than they used to. So first, um, a number of people argue that the counterterror operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and other countries are a violation of the president's uh, constitutional powers or usurpation of powers of Congress. However, all of these um, uh, activities uh, have authorization. Um, there was, first of all, the authorization for use of military force, which Congress enacted in 2001. Uh, immediately after 9-11, this AUMF, as it's called, gave the president uh, very broad authority to engage in counterterrorism operations against al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda affiliates, nations that harbor al-Qaeda, and related entities. And then finally, and most important, the president has in the, in the Constitution two uh, sources of power that are relevant here. The first is the commander-in-chief power, and the second is what lawyers call the vesting clause, under which the executive power is vested in the president. It is widely agreed among lawyers that these two powers give the president the power to use military force abroad in limited ways to protect American interests, to advance American security. Michael did mention the Libya operation in 2011. In this case, the president relied on his constitutional powers. And in doing so, he followed in the footsteps of his predecessors. 
President Clinton, for example, used military force without congressional authorization in 1999 in Serbia. For Reagan, it was Libya in 1986, Grenada in 1983. Um, and these are only the most recent examples. Truman, for example, initiated the Korean War without congressional authorization, instead relying on his constitutional powers. And then let me uh, finish with um, two executive agreements that uh, President Obama entered into. So the first such agreement was in 2015. It was the Iran nuclear deal. And the second agreement was in 2016, and that was the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. And so what the critics say is that uh, a president can enter into an international agreement only with two-thirds consent of the Senate, because in the Constitution there is a clause called the Treaty Clause, which says that when the president enters into a treaty, he needs the consent of the Senate. However, there's a difference between a treaty and between the type of agreement that President Obama entered into. Now, in the case of a treaty, uh, normally a treaty will directly affect the rights and obligations of Americans. But in the case of these agreements, all that President Obama did was agree to use authorities that he already has as a result of a statute. So in the case of the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, he was required to uh, raise the sanctions against Iran under certain conditions. But there are plenty of statutes that allow him to do that. And in the case of the Paris Climate Agreement, what he agreed to do was to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Well, he has the authority to do that under the Clean Air Act, which, as the Supreme Court has recognized, allows him to issue uh, regulations related to climate change. So the president has, in all these cases, acted with authority that he gets from the Constitution or for Congress, and therefore you should vote against the motion. Thank you, Eric Posner. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in Philadelphia. We've heard the team arguing for the motion, Carrie Severino and Michael McConnell, make the argument that the structure of the Constitution matters, it is critical, but that President Obama and his predecessors have repeatedly transgressed the boundaries drawn around their own powers with detrimental effects. They say, even if you think it's okay to break a few rules to overcome an unfriendly Congress, that does not mean it's constitutional that we have seen President Obama uh, take over the Congress's role and others in starting wars, in making appointments. They say that if President Obama can continue to do this, if this trend continues beyond him, that his successors can unilaterally change any law they want. The team arguing against them, Adam Cox and Eric Posner, they take a very different point of view on this. They say that there's no usurpation because usurpation suggests force and illegitimacy. But what they're saying has actually happened is that over the course of the 20th century, as they put it, a revolution has taken place in our political system. Therefore, Congress has on its own delegated powers to the president. They've given him a chain of legitimacy. I think this is a debate where generally we're going to need to work through the examples. But there were also some, some general points brought up. So I want to start with a more general framework first and go back to the language that we discussed is in the Constitution about the president's responsibility to take care to faithfully execute the laws of the United States. And I want to go to Mike McConnell and just ask you, what is your expectation of that phrase, to faithfully execute? means what? Um, this language was specifically adopted by the framers uh, here in Philadelphia in order to negate the possibility that our executive would do what the Stuart kings had done, which was to make proclamations declaring lawful things that Parliament had made unlawful. This doesn't mean exercises of prosecutorial discretion. Everyone has always understood that never, no law is always uh, uh, enforced against everyone. But it does prevent the con uh, president from doing what President Obama did in the immigration context, which is actually declaring that activities of some people are lawful, even though Congress made them unlawful. And in what way did that represent a break with being faithful to the laws? Faithful execution does not mean 100% execution, but it does mean not declaring things lawful that are unlawful. So I don't think that Mike and I disagree all that much at an abstract level about what that obligation in the Constitution requires of presidents. Uh, but it was understood by the framers 
that, of course, one of the most important functions in executive plays is to exercise discretion in how the law is enforced. Now, on the example of immigration in particular, I guess I just disagree with Michael on the facts. So, you know, the, the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department stated clearly the same thing that the Department of Homeland Security that issued this order said, which was that it does not confer legal status on immigrants. Uh, do you and deny so that the word legal do, status is actually in the order? No, it does not. It, it does say that it confers a technical regulatory the, the status. The word technical isn't in there. The credit. word lawful status is there. And no, this, enables, this enables the beneficiaries not just not to be deported. They are given a laminated photo ID, which entitles them to be present in the United States, to get jobs in the United States, to sign up for Social Security. The principal enforcement mechanism for the immigration laws is to make it illegal for employers to hire illegal aliens. When you give them this laminated card entitling them to work, there is the principal enforcement mechanism for the immigration laws has been uh, completely uh, undermined. Okay, Eric Posner, can you respond to that? But the the law explicitly gives the president the authority to uh, allow people who who remain here to work. Kerry Severino, to that point, your opponents have argued, particularly Adam Cox made the argument, that the president can't be accused of usurping power because he has this chain of legitimacy that goes back through the fact that in many cases Congress wrote laws that then delegated powers to the executive branch, and all they're doing is, is ex- exercising the powers that Congress gave them. What's your response to that? Well, there, there are a lot of debates about the, the amount of delegation we can give to administrative agencies, et cetera, but that actually isn't, doesn't come into play in the examples that that we were talking about here that I gave earlier, I'm talking about clear examples where the law says this law is going to come into effect on such and such date, and the date has been actually changed. Or the, the, uh, there's, okay, that's a, you know, let's, let's just so take that as an example. Clear if some, some clear change like that, is that rewriting the law, essentially? No, so Adam it's Cox. often true that Congress includes statutory deadlines in the way it imagines that a law will be rolled out. So the Affordable Care Act, uh, the... Obamacare, which provides for national exchanges and, um, in theory, affordable health care for all, rolled out over a period of a couple of years. And as Kerry says, the statute included a number of targets. And it is, in fact, very common with respect to the Clean Air Act, with respect to workplace safety laws. Going back decades, almost every time that Congress enacts a large, ambitious social program, the administration has taken longer to roll that law out. Okay, but, Congress but just, just to bring it back to the Affordable Care Act, what we're particularly talking about or has been controversial is the fact that employers with, employ- with firms larger than 50 people were obliged to start providing insurance. The deadline came, unquestionably it was politically uh, difficult for the president at that point to push it through. Business community didn't like it. He moved the deadline. Your opponents are arguing that that was not only politically expedient and therefore somewhat not cool, but that it was, it was rewriting the law. And I, am I to make... Yeah, well, he, and he didn't even just move the law that one once. He moved it three times. And that is just to, to give the, the broad picture. There's not enough time. Okay, so... There's, there's 15 times he's changed deadlines in the statute, seven different provisions that he has given out subsidies that weren't authorized. There's so many ways he's changed this law, it's almost hard to count. Mike McConnell, why doesn't he just get to do that? If we had elected... Mitt Romney uh, last time around, and Romney had suddenly decided that the employer mandate doesn't have to be, have to be enforced. The individual mandate doesn't have to be, be enforced. People would be screaming bloody murder. They would realize that the, the Congress passed this law. It has to be enforced. Just because President Obama was in favor of the law doesn't give him the right to concoct all of these exceptions in order to to try to make it less politically unpalatable uh, when it comes to enforcement. Eric Posner. The other side here is taking this 18th century conception and trying to impress it on the 21st century. What's going on here is that Congress produces these massive statutes, hundreds of pages long, which are supposed to solve very difficult social problems. These statutes will have dozens of deadlines in them, sometimes even hundreds of deadlines in them. Dodd-Frank Act had something like 220 deadlines or regulations that were required. And Congress is guessing. You know, it's saying, uh, well, you know, this is what we'd like you to do. Please try to do it. 
And the and presidents of all type from both parties, they implement these uh, incredibly complex programs. Sometimes they hit deadlines. Sometimes they miss deadlines. Sometimes they adjust things because they don't work properly. Sometimes they don't. Now, you have to use common sense when you evaluate the president. If the president is trying to advance the goal of the statute, then he's clearly not usurping uh, Congress's power. He's simply... Uh, acting with more information in light of changing events in a way that Congress could not anticipate. The problem with the Mitt Romney example is it it immediately brings into mind somebody who will deliberately subvert a statute. If a president deliberately subverts a statute by ignoring uh, deadlines or whatever it is that that are actually essential to the operation of the statute, then at that point you can say, perhaps, that the president is usurping Congress's power. I cannot think of a real example where that's happened in recent history. Okay. Presidents are relatively conscientious well, about rolling out the Carrie statute. Carrie Severino, can you respond to the point? Your opponent's well-made well point that, in fact, the president is not trying to subvert the law. He's, he's fine-tuning it, but he's obviously not working against it. And that, and that that's an important distinction. Right. Well, good intentions are no substitute for good constitutional law. And saying that you're advancing the goal of the statute, the goal of the statute, the, the most the way that courts should look at for that to find out what it is, is what, what does the statute actually say? You, you, it's not actually commonplace that they just get to rewrite the statutes because we want it's not working, or in this case, because it's not politically convenient. There were lots of other people who were Obamacare proponents at the time who were shocked, that, in particular the, the employer mandate uh, delay. Uh, Ezra Klein, who was a big proponent of Obamacare, he said that was an, a regulatory end run of the legislative process. Senator Tom Harkin, Democrat, one of the authors of the ACA, he said, this was the law. How can they change the law? And the answer is, they can't. When, when the president was criticized for doing this back then, he, he literally said, well, if Congress doesn't like it, they should go pass their own bill, which made it sound like he was saying, I'm going to legislate if they're not going to legislate, which makes it sound like he's playing into their side of the argument. What, what about that, Adam Cox? I think the reality is that the, the law on the book says that a court can compel an agency's action that is unreasonably withheld. That means that federal law itself builds in the idea that Eric is talking about, the idea that complicated statutes often require more work than Congress initially imagined. That's why this federal law, the Administrative Procedure Act, this thing that governs the regulatory state, says only when that action is unreasonably withheld should a court intervene. That goes right back to this idea of faithful execution. And as Eric said, there's no reason here to think that the execution was not faithful. I'm John Donvan. Questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. The president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. We are doing questions and answers. And there was a question right there. Hi, my name is Gloria. I go to Temple University. So my question would be, um, don't you think it would maybe take too long for every time the president would run into a speed bump in enacting a law that Congress wants to go back to Congress and then ask for permission again to sort of make that amendment? Great question. Make sense? Uh, uh, let's take it to Carrie Severino. Uh, yes, that's, it, it, that is the effect, and it, but actually that's part of the intent of the, the constitutional design, that the president isn't given just a broad authority. The, the Congress certainly knows how to, to give that flexibility, and some of this delegation to administrative agencies is how they deal with that. If they think there is going to be an issue that's going to need some tweaking, they can make a broader language within, within limits. But that's not how our Constitution sets it up. It doesn't have an, an escape clause for if the, if the law turns out it's not working as intended, or if the law turns out that people don't like it as well as they thought, or there's just speed bumps, as you said. It simply isn't the Constitution system. Adam Cox, would you like to respond as well? Yeah, I agree completely. And that's exactly why Congress in the 1930s started to give more power to the president. And that's why the Supreme Court in an unbroken string of precedents over the last 80 odd years has supported that vision of the Constitution. Congress passes statutes that say things like clean up the air to protect public health or regulate communications in the public interest. That's the standard given. And it confers tremendous policymaking authority, which makes for a more flexible, responsive policymaking process, a more democratic one. That was a great uh, question, both in its Kerry format and, and in its not, point. have not complained about any delegations by Congress. We're not saying that it's illegal for the president to exercise powers that actually have been delegated by Congress. It's the ones that they haven't delegated that are the problem. Uh, sir, right in the center there. 
Uh, yeah, my name's Jack. And if the people for the motion would address the like implied consent of Congress, for example, against ISIS, there was no formal declaration of war, but Congress has sort of showed its approval by funding the air war against ISIS. So if you could comment on that, please. That's a great question, actually. Let's take that to Mike McConnell. Uh, The administration has taken the interesting position that the war against ISIS is authorized by the AUMF, the Authorization for Use of Military Force, uh, that George Bush was given by Congress uh, to fight al-Qaeda, on the theory that ISIS, even though it's a competitor and in some ways an enemy of ISIS, is in fact an offshoot uh, of ISIS, uh, you know, President Obama, after asking Congress to repeal the AUMF, uh, uh, has now used it not only to, uh, to fight an entirely new organization, but to uh, move from uh, Iraq into Syria. I didn't mention this as an example because I don't think it's entirely clear-cut. There is, in fact, an AUMF out there. Eric made the argument that you can stretch the language to include it. President Obama is apparently rather uncertain as to whether he has this authority or not, but he hasn't been willing to go to Congress and have an honest debate about whether Mike, we should I think be engaged in it. I think the questioner's point was that if Congress continues to fund the operations, that that's a tacit going along. Oh, the, oh, the, the Supreme Court has consistently said that appropriations are not uh, a substitute for authorization opposing, of legal action. Opposing side, want to respond to that? Well, the, the, the the questioner makes a good point that the way the world really works as opposed to the way the founders were sort of hoping it would work in the 18th century is that frequently there's collaboration between the president and Congress, which isn't formally reduced into statutes, but nonetheless re- reflects the joint uh, judgment and, and beliefs of, of both branches. So whatever you think of that from a legal perspective, it would be very hard to call that usurpation of, uh, of, of Congress's authority. Uh, I think you're in the last row. Yep. Hey, I'm Pat. Uh, so it's a question for both sides, a clarifying question, but mainly for the against. In your opening remarks, sort of a pillar was that you argued that uh, the president has not usurped power of Congress, but Congress has abdicated the power. So my question is... Don't think we use that word. <laughs> so maybe not, but is, is it even legal for the Congress to abdicate their power? And furthermore, if it is, should that come through legislation or should that come through a constitutional amendment? Adam? You look ready. So as Eric said, uh, we didn't use the word abdication, and for good reason, uh, because, well, legally, the Supreme Court has, since the 1930s, sustained the notion that it's lawful for Congress to delegate important policymaking power to the president for just the reasons we stated. Congress lacks, as a deliberative body, lacks the capacity, doesn't have the time to answer all these questions itself, and it also lacks the expertise to do so. And... That means as a social matter, as well as a legal matter, it's a good thing that Congress has the authority to delegate this power to the president. Well, Carrie, so, you know, let's have you take a crack at the same question, but I want to maybe slightly rephrase it. Has Congress unwisely let power slip through its fingers over the last century? I think I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, our system is broken in many ways. We, the, the idea was to have these checks and balances that were supposed to work against each other so that the institutional interests of Congress would be, be working against the institutional interests of the president, and they would be, each be kind of policing those boundaries. And that was supposed to help us maintain this the system that doesn't allow tyranny to take over, right? I, I hope I'm not... Uh, veering into tyrannophobia. But um, our, our challenge is that now, and maybe in some ways it's, it's the, the political parties have become too committed to, perhaps to defending their own party rather than defending their own institutions. So you'll have, uh, in, in cases of both Bush and Obama, I think, their, their partisan interests of the, of the members of Congress will defend their own president's uh, party rather than actually standing up for those boundaries. We used to have people, I mean, Senator Robert Byrd was known as a real institutionalist who stood for the interests of the Senate, not just the interest of his own party. And unfortunately, there aren't that many people like that anymore. So uh, it's important for us to remember what those boundaries are and, you know, help to remind the government we need to have people policing these boundaries. Okay. Down front row here. Uh, Mike's coming down from your right-hand side. My question is, um, is there any way when we think that the president has overstepped the power in order to be able to prevent it? In other words, you have said that the only people that can stop the president from overstepping his power is the um, Supreme Court. And on the other hand, can't Congress stop him from also oversurging his power? And is the point of your question that his power really can't be overstepped if there's always somebody there to check it? Yes. Okay, that's an interesting way to put it. Let's take that first to your side, and I'll bring it to the other side, Mike McConnell. See, 
I think the way our system works is that we have institutional checks. Courts are an institutional check. Congress is an institutional check. Ultimately, though, it is going to be the public that is the only real check. And as long as our members of Congress and our judges do not believe that the American people care about checks and balances, then they are not going to be very motivated uh, to do this. So I think that the public has a very real role, not a direct role, but a powerful real role in motivating our political system to care again about the way in which our government is structured. Eric Posner. Well, I'm glad to hear uh, Michael quoting from my book again, or paraphrasing, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, one of the arguments in the book is that it is, in fact, the public, Love the book. The public and <laughs> um, the press and uh, the party system, to some extent, there are all of these institutions that have arisen which uh, control the president, that make sure that the president doesn't uh, go too far. And then there, of course, there still are real institutional constraints. Obama did not get everything he wanted from Congress. Bush did not get everything he wanted from Congress. No president has gotten everything that they want from Congress. Bush, Obama, previous presidents have frequently found themselves thwarted by the courts, not necessarily the Supreme Court. It could be a, a, a lower court as well. So there are a great many constraints on, on how the president can behave. That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. On to round three. Round three will be closing statements by each debater in turn. In support of the motion, Carrie Severino, Chief Counsel and Policy Director of the Judicial Crisis Network. Thanks. Have you ever wondered why we go to all this trouble of having elections every two years for a Congress and four years for the president? It, it really would be a lot more efficient, I'm sure, to just give all of the power to one person. They can make the laws, they can execute the laws, etc. But the reason our framers chose not to do it that way is because they had experienced what happens when you have all that power concentrated in a single government. Their belief was that it leads to tyranny. And that's why they created the Constitution with its separate checks and balances, because they thought that was the best way to preserve our liberties. When we're talking about these constitutional powers, it's those same powers that applied for Washington, applied for Lincoln, applied for Nixon, Bush, and Obama, and they're the ones who are going to apply to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton has already said she's going to take President Obama's executive orders on immigration and go even further with them. Donald Trump said essentially the same thing. He's going to use executive orders, too, except for he said he's going to use them much better, and they're going to serve a much better purpose than what he's done. So, I don't know. They're going to be gilded or something. Um, but... <laughs> The, 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 the problem is President Obama did re- promise to restore the constitutional balance between Congress and the president, but he didn't. He was tempted by the power of the office, by the expediency, or just, in his mind, by the greater good. I think there's a lot of people here who they think, well, maybe this isn't working. Okay, that, that may be true. Maybe we do need to amend our Constitution. Maybe we need to change it to, to, in, in some ways. But even if we think this, uh, you don't have to show that our country has devolved into tyranny to acknowledge, to affirm the proposition of this debate. Because I think it's clear from what we talked about. The recess appointments we haven't even had a chance to discuss. I don't think they, they have rebutted anything I've, I've said on that. And the appropriations, the president has clearly uh, overstepped his bounds, in, including rewriting the law, the authorization of war without Congress, uh, etc. Because the president has done so repeatedly, he has usurped the powers of Congress, I ask you to vote yes in favor of the proposition. Thank you, Carrie Severino. <clears throat> And that's the motion. The president has usurped the constitutional powers of Congress. And here to make his closing statement against the motion, Adam Cox, professor at New York University School of Law. So when I was a brand new lawyer, fresh out of law school, I interviewed for a job in the Department of Justice in a little unit that spent its time investigating municipal police departments. And the year of my interview was 2000, right in the middle of the George W. Bush, Al Gore presidential race. And in the interview, I recall vividly asking the lawyer what would happen to the work the unit did if Bush won the election rather than Al Gore. And he was a little bit annoyed. But the reason I asked him was exactly the reason why Eric and I are here tonight arguing against the proposition. It was because I knew that each presidential administration comes with a mandate from the people and a set of priorities that might be different than the last presidential administration. And that's a crucial point, right? That's what gives an administration the power to pivot, to focus on issues that are socially important in the moment. That's why the Justice Department today has recently been able to reinvigorate 
its investigations of local police departments after the events of Ferguson and Baltimore and elsewhere. That's democracy. It's not tyranny. And that's why you should vote against the proposition. Thank you, Adam Cox. And again, the proposition is the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Michael McConnell, director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. Uh, I've long told my students in constitutional law that when thinking about issues of constitutional power, uh, they should think not about presidents or leaders that they admire and trust, but ones that they disagree with, ones that they don't trust. And they always just thought I was some kind of fuddy-duddy. We're at a different moment, and suddenly I see light coming into their eyes and a a newly dawning recognition that maybe these constitutional limits are there for a reason. Maybe, as well, Benjamin Franklin said, a few blocks down the road, maybe uh, an uh, enlightened statesman will not always be at the, at the helm. We've not been talking about speed bumps. We've not been talking about congressional delegations that Adam wants to talk about. We've been talking about very important uh, changes, not over 200 years, but over the last 8, 12, 16 years. We're talking about presidents who have spent money that wasn't appropriated. We've talked about presidents uh, uh, going to war without even asking Congress for, uh, for authorization. Uh, we're talking about presidents blatantly deciding not to enforce uh, laws when, when, when the, that very president uh, knew and said beforehand that that would not be an appropriate use uh, uh, of the office. We've been talking about national security violations that even uh, that Eric Posner is, uh, uh, in his book at least, uh, says are, are, are entirely uh, illegal. This will go on unless the American public is willing to stand up and say this is a problem. Join President Obama as candidate saying this is a serious problem. The presidents have usurped uh, authority that has properly been vested by our Constitution uh, in Congress. Thank you. Thank you, Michael McConnell. The motion again, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. And here making his closing statement against the motion, Eric Posner, professor at the University of Chicago Law School. You might not have noticed, but while um, people were speaking, I went onto my iPhone and I went to rightdiagnosis.com to check out what's the cure for tyrannophobia. And the answer is statistics. And so I thought I would give you a few statistics here. And the idea here is to show you that things aren't, aren't really bad, especially when we focus on the current president. So as has been mentioned, presidents use executive orders. They do this because Congress has told them to regulate in various ways and take other actions. An executive order is just an order to his subordinates to do those things. Well, what is the record like? Reagan, before this 16-year period Michael told us about, issued 381 executive orders over two terms. Clinton issued 364. Bush issued 291. Obama issued 242 through seven and a third years, pretty much in line with his predecessors, maybe a little less. Another example, signing statements. During the Bush administration, a controversy erupted because George Bush would issue these statements when he signed bills, saying that while he's signing this bill, there are certain provisions that he would not enforce because they were in conflict with his constitutional powers. So I looked up the numbers for that as well. Now, uh, Reagan issued 250 signing statements, Clinton, 381. Bush himself, 161. What about Obama? Through 2014, 30. And then finally, the scary topic of recess appointments. The president um, appoints something like 1,200 to 1,400 people per year in the executive branch. He's allowed to make appointments when uh, Congress is in recess. Reagan, 232. Clinton, 139. Bush, 171, Obama through six years, 32. Vote against the motion. Thank you, Eric Posner. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress.
It's all in now. You have voted twice. It's the difference between the two votes that determines who is the winner. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote on the motion, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Before the debate, 29% of you agreed with this motion. 39% were against it. 32% were undecided. A third of you. Let's look at the second vote now. The team arguing for the motion, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Their second vote was 38%. That means they pulled up nine percentage points. That becomes the number to beat. Let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote, 39%. Their second vote, 53%. That means they pulled up 14 percentage points. The team arguing against the motion has been declared our winner. Where the motion is, the president has usurped the constitutional power of Congress. Our congratulations to that side, but to all of the debate. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was presented in partnership with the National Constitution Center and held at the F.M. Kirby Auditorium in Philadelphia. Dana Wolf is our executive producer, Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are our radio producers, Damon Whittemore is audio engineer, Clea Chang, chief marketing and digital officer. And Chris Kamakawa is Director of Research. I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. This debate was brought to you with generous support from the National Constitution Center through a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed during the program are those of the program participants and not necessarily the views of the John Templeton Foundation. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with visionary support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and others. From Intelligence Squared U.S., Thank you. And just one more thing. We want to ask for your help, or actually, we want to ask for your signatures. We at Intelligence Squared U.S. are putting up a petition on change.org that focuses on the quality of our presidential debates. And let's face it, pretty much everybody agrees those debates aren't real debates, and they haven't been for a long time. The candidates get up there with prepared remarks that they throw at each other, but they never really engage with the ideas, the way we see on our stage at Intelligence Squared U.S. Our petition calls for the candidates and for the Commission on Presidential Debates to change formats to the Oxford-style format, the one that we use. We think that will produce more meaningful, more informational, more grown-up debates than we've seen in a long, long time. So go to change.org forward slash Fix the debates. That's our petition. And sign it, please. Thank you.